Uh-oh, I missed my command, didn't I? If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing the same old voice, the same old, if you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you've got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light of day in the dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. We've all run to things we know just ain't right. And there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. You feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify. You got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. If you need freedom or saving, He's a prison shaking savior. You got chains. He's a chain breaker. Thank you, Sherry, for sharing the biblical truth of that song with us. You blessed us. Amen. If you have your Bible or something that opens a Bible, your phone or smart stuff, whatever, I'll open it up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to be looking at verses 121 through 128 in Psalm chapter 119. Many years ago, when we only had one child at home, but we were soon expecting a second Kathleen and I were looking to purchase our very first home back in Belton, Texas. We looked and we looked and we looked and we had a great 
realtor. Realtors are godsend, by the way. I've always thought that, Miss Gina. But uh, she was very patient. This one was very patient with us. In fact, she took us to the same house three times, and we just, uh, it was our first house, you know, and we were kind of nervous. And so once we found the perfect house, it was the perfect size, it was the perfect price, and and all of that, then our realtor started going with their realtor, and they worked out a good deal, and, and we came to an agreement. And then came the money part, right? Then came securing a loan and, and, well, signing all this paperwork. In fact, a big part of the paperwork we had to sign had to deal with the finances because we did not have the entire amount that that house cost in our bank account. So we had to go to a bank and get a loan for that. You ever done this, right? Got a home loan, a home mortgage loan, something like that. And this is where we started coming into issues. We were young. Uh, we only had one child, and we had three strikes against us. The first strike was is that uh, I had not had my job very long. Uh, as, a, as an associate pastor at this particular church that I was at, I'd only been there for about four or five months, and generally, they want to see that you have held down a job for at least like a year or two, back then anyway. The second strike was we were a one-income family at the time. I was the only one working. Kathleen was able to stay home at that time. And then the third strike is that we had quite a bit of debt from uh, school loans that we had uh, still owed back to uh, whoever it was that gave us those student loans. So, you know, at some point they started talking about needing a guarantor. I'm pronouncing that right, a guarantor. And a guarantor is kind of like a co-signer, but there's some slight differences. Uh, but basically what a guarantor is, is it says, basically states, I will guarantee that these payments, these mortgage payments, uh, will be made. Thankfully, though, we didn't have to get anyone to be a guarantor for us, in case you're wondering the rest of the story. We both had excellent credit, because even though we had a lot of debt, we paid everything on time, and so we had excellent credit scores, and so they gave us our home loan based on our credit scores. You get the point. We needed someone to secure us or say, yes, these people will make their payments. Our credit was the one that did it for us in that particular instance. When you consider all the things that happen in your life, who do you count on for good in your life? Who do you go to to supply you with the good in your life. You see, the struggle is, is that we get so mixed up and turned around in our everyday life struggles that we forget who the guarantor for our good is. We start thinking, well, we'll supply it for ourselves. But that's not what the Bible really teaches. This morning we are considering the 16th section of Psalm 119. Verses 121 through verses 128 is the 16th section of 22 sections. And in each line, each verse of this section begins with the Hebrew letter ayin. It looks a little bit like a Y. I don't know if you can see that up there or not. It looks a little bit like a Y. And though it may sound to you, ayin sounds like an A sound. Actually, in the Hebrew language, it's often silent or it's used for glutteral sounds like... Uh, uh, stuff like that, right? Hebrew language. Interestingly, most of the Hebrew letters are in and of themselves representatives of different words as a whole. The Hebrew letter ayin is representative of the I. You see that in verse 123 when the psalmist says, my eyes fell from seeking your word. 
But the ion word I want to look at today is found in verse 122. In my Bible, it is translated surety. Be surety for your servant for good. Other translations, it says be the pledge or be the guarantor or guarantee of good for your servant. The idea is simple. The psalmist is requesting of God, be my good. Be the guarantor of good for your servant. Thinking about that house that we were trying to buy way back in 2003, we are, we are not able to produce good on our own or what is truly good. We're going to get to that. We need God for this. Let's read our scripture, verses 121 through 128. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fell from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy, and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they are regarded, or for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Verse 128. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Let's pause a moment for prayer, please. God, we come before you. We desperately need to hear from you. Or some of us, we haven't felt your good in a long time. And we need that surety in our life. We need that guarantee. And God, I, I, I come before you because if this is up to me, I'll mess it up. This is your Holy Spirit-inspired word written out. And we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your Holy Spirit. And you are present in this place. I believe it. I know it to be true. So Lord, would you just speak to each and every single one of us here this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So what I see is the psalmist gives us three reasons why God is the guarantor of good. The first one is this, God never leaves us. God is always there. He never leaves us. You see this idea in verses 121 and 122 in regards to the opposition that the psalmist is concerned with. We have talked about this as we've gone through this chapter. He's always talking about opposition or oppression. He says, do not leave me and do not let the proud oppress or pressure me. The presence of the Lord is a surety. It is a guarantee for us. And while it's true that the psalmist is requesting his presence, in reality, he would know that the Lord is always with us. So what's going on? Why is he requesting this? Have you ever had one of those really troubling experiences in your life where you just said, God, where are you? I know I have, right? But you still ask the question, God, where are you? Or maybe you've prayed and you just said, God, do you even hear me? Maybe we are being oppressed. Maybe we feel that uh, opposition, uh, uh, an enemy of some sort. It could be a lot of different things. Sometimes depression is our oppression. Sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's grief. There are so many human emotions that can 
cause us to feel oppressed. And in the moment of that oppression, of that feeling of opposition, we, like the psalmist, might cry out, God, where are you? Where is your presence? Don't leave me alone like this. But God hasn't gone anywhere. He is always there right with us. How can we know this? Well, the Bible tells us that. This psalmist would have known Deuteronomy 31.6, which says, Be strong and courageous, do not fear, or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and He will not leave you or forsake you. And that verse, just to give us some application, is given to the Israelites as they're about to cross the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land and face this enemy that is inhabiting this land that God has promised them. Nevertheless, the psalmist cries out, God, where is your presence? God, give me your presence. And you know what that shows me? It's okay for us to cry out for his presence too. And it's not that we're doubting his presence as much as we need a reminder of his presence. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life I don't doubt necessarily his presence, but I cry out for it because I need a reminder of it. Is anybody, besides Vance, anybody feeling me? I need that. In fact, just this week, I was kind of having a down time. I'm human, man. I was having a down time, and I just spent some time in prayer, and I, I prayed something like this. Maybe it was the scripture that led me to do this, but I just said, God, I need to know you're hearing me. I could certainly use some kind of encouragement. And, and I do this a lot. I just say, God, I, I really could use some encouragement. And I've gotten to the point now where I just kind of step back and I wait to see what's going to happen. And, and I mean, 24 hours later, I get this phone call from this guy that I haven't heard from, and he just speaks into my heart. And I just, I know, he had no idea that I had been seeking that kind of encouragement. And that's what came. I guarantee you, you cry out, God, I need a reminder of your presence, a reminder that you're hearing me. I promise you, if you do that in faith, God will answer that call. We can know that God is our guarantor for good because He is always with us. He is always listening to us. Always. Capital A. Always. Number two, He is our guarantor for good because He gives us understanding. I want you to look at the three things He says about gaining understanding about God's Word. In verses 123 through 125, He says, His eyes fell from seeking God's salvation and His Word. In other words, He's growing eye-tired because he has been seeking God's word so much. Next, he says, his request God, for God's mercy is teaching him God's word. Teach me your statutes according to your mercy, he says, verse 124. And then the third thing he says is, is that he requests understanding that he may know God's word. All throughout this study of Psalm, I've tried to remind us that the focus of this entire chapter, Psalm 119, is this, God's word to us, his written revelation. In this, this chapter, Psalm 119, has not only been emphasizing God's word, but it has emphasized the sufficiency, the authority, and its application to our everyday lives and how it can reveal answers, if you will, in our life. And so every section, there's some kind of lesson about the importance of God's word. And so when I say that God is the guarantor of good because he gives us understanding, our first thought may be not regarding his word, but about life situations. 
When I say God gives us understanding, so that makes him our guarantor for good, you may be saying, well, he hasn't given me understanding. I need some understanding in my situation. But that's not what the psalmist is asking for understanding about. Why not? Well, we have kind of imagined, if you will, that the author of this Psalm 119 is actually David. Okay? So you think about he's asking for understanding. Why wouldn't he ask for understanding about his situation? Let's think about his situation. Let's think about just one situation where he faced oppression or opposition or an enemy. When he was first anointed king, he wasn't made king right away. There's one thing right there. But then he was called into the service of the king, King Saul. And if you read through 1 Samuel, what you see about Saul and David's relationship is there would be these moments where Saul would go wacko. The Bible actually said an evil spirit would be upon him, and he would try to kill David. Now, I don't know about you, I've never had anybody necessarily trying to kill me. But if I was David, I might be tempted to say, God, I don't understand why Saul is trying to kill me. Could you give me understanding about Saul? So why doesn't the psalmist say, Lord, give me understanding about my oppression? Give me understanding about my trouble. Give me understanding about my trial. But instead, he says, give me understanding about my word. And I think it's this. This is what I've experienced in my life. Because giving me understanding about my trial, about my trouble, about my opposition, doesn't really help me. If understanding why Saul was trying to kill David would have done something for him, then God would have done it. But it probably wouldn't have done anything for David. Well, now I understand why he's killing me. But he's still trying to kill me. So much of the randomness of life, the heartaches we face, the trouble that comes our way, are often unavoidable and really and truly ununderstandable. There's nothing that can be done about it, nothing we could do about it. And it really does not help us to fight for and try to gain understanding about our plight, about our trouble, about our tribulation, or about the ones who trouble us. And so like David or whoever the psalmist is, the wisest thing we can do is ask God for understanding of his word. And really what he's asking for there in verse 25, when he says, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies, is he is saying, give me application. Lord, I want to know how to apply your word to my life. In this situation, in this moment in my life, facing oppression, facing trouble, facing trial, whatever it is, Lord, how does your word apply to my life? Because his word is life. And these are the words of life. And so the greatest thing that we can ever ascend to have is a mental understanding of God's word, life application of God's word, and cry out like a psalmist, God, help me apply your word to my life. Because isn't that really what's going to help us live life? If there's one thing we've learned in life is that we will always have trouble. We will always have trials. We will always have an enemy or some kind of opposition, either internal or external. So what we need is the wisest thing possible, God's word. God, give me application of your word to my life. God is the guarantor of good because he will give us understanding of his word for our lives if we seek it. I mean, think about Job. 
Job never understood, never understood why he went through the troubles. But God gave him understanding of his work. Where at the end, Job was able to say, my Redeemer lives. Number three, the Lord acts. Why is God the guarantor of our good? Because the Lord acts. Now, when I first looked at verse 126, I thought, gosh, that's kind of arrogant of this guy. This is what my version says. It is time for you to act, O Lord. And as I first read through that, I read it like this. It's time for you to act, O Lord. Kind of arrogant, you know, kind of egotistical, kind of putting upon God our expectations that, hey, this is, this is what you're supposed to be doing. But as I kept praying about it, 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 it wasn't so much of an arrogant moment as much as it was a uh, expected heralding. It is time for God to act. God will take action as he always does. That kind of, of an announcement. And especially in the context of verses 121 through 128, the action of the Lord has to do with his admonishment with those who have disregarded and broken his law. Now why would this be action, or why would this action be proof to us that he is a guarantor of good? Because a good judge always enacts justice. We talked about this, I think it was last week, about how we can rejoice in the fact that God is a just judge because with a just judge, there is no fear of injustice or unrighteousness. The same holds true in verse 126. God is going to act because His law has been disregarded or considered to be void. The Lord acts. He acts on behalf of His law. He acts on behalf of His people. He acts on behalf of true justice. Consider the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. We've been looking at that in Sunday school, right? Pharaoh and his army hot on their hills. They're pinned against the Red Sea. What shall we do? Where are we going to go? And he splits that Red Sea like a butter knife through butter, right? What's that old saying? It seems like it's hopeless, but the Lord acts. He acts for his people. He acts on behalf of justice. Or consider Stephen. One of those first deacons who begins to preach to those gathered around him in Acts 7 and tells the story of how the Old Testament prophesied the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in their anger, the, the Jews pick up stones and they begin to stone Stephen to death. Wait, how is that good? Because the Lord acts. And after this horrible tragedy, what you see is the church at first motivated by the fear of persecution, disperses to all other regions around the world and taking with them the message of Jesus Christ. The message of salvation begins to spread. The Lord acts, even in the most worst of situations. The Lord is our guarantor for good because He acts, because He moves. He did not create the world and all of us and then leave us to fend for ourselves or live our lives up to chance or some kind of weird power called fate, but that He is actively involved in every moment of our life. No matter how random it may seem, the Lord acts. The problem is, is that we see this, we see a list like this, we think about 
these Bible stories and we think, how is this supposed to be for our good? There's a couple of reasons why we do not always see the good of God. There's probably a lot of reasons, but I want to give you two. The first one is this. We are confused on what is good. Is that what it says? Look at that. You're we are confused on what is good. And really, confused is a nice way of putting it. Here's what I mean. If I tell a little white lie, and as a result of that little white lie, I get a promotion and a pay raise, and then I can afford to take my family on some really fun outings. Is that good or is that bad? By the outward appearance, we might say, well, that's good. Look at Brian. He's taking his family on some outings and doing some family things. If the cashier gives me too much change back at the store, and I notice it, but I keep it, and I put it in my pocket, and then I go home and I say, hey, sweetheart, I want to take you out to a meal today. Well, she would be really happy, and that would be good. But is that really good? You see, we're confused about this thing called good. The truth is, is that we generally define good in a couple of ways. Either it benefits us or it brings us pleasure. That which benefits us, though, is not always good, especially if it negatively affects another individual. If my good comes at the expense of someone else, or even worse, at the negative expense of someone else, then it is not good. Your wife might really enjoy being taken out to a nice meal. But the cashier that loses her job because her drawer is $20 short has now been negatively impacted. What about some other ways that we might think something is good, but it really isn't good? How about winning an argument at the humiliation of someone else? Oh, I feel good about myself. I won that argument. But what about that other person? How about the joy of expressing your opinion or your views on a matter at the expense of the feelings of another person? How about getting something off your chest? Boy, I feel so much better. I really got that off my chest. But what did it cost the person that you got it off your chest to? Likewise, those things that bring us pleasure are not always good. Pleasure is not a bad thing. Gratification is not bad. But more than likely, the majority of the time, they are at the expense of something bad. Let me give you a couple of silly examples, and we'll think about some better thoughts about this. The cookies look good, and they taste good, and it would, be, it would bring me great pleasure to eat all of them. So is that good? No. Because of selfishness. Selfishness is wrong. If I eat all of them, then my family doesn't get any, right? But there's also gluttony. Gluttony is bad. Our bodies are a temple of God to purposely overeat and harm the health that God has given us for the sake of pleasure of eating all the cookies is a bad thing. You know, I'd really like a new pickup truck. Hey, and I can afford the payments, right? So is it good if I go out and get me a new pickup truck? Well, number one, I've got to define afford, right? <laughs> what, is going to, what is going to have to be sacrificed in order that I can afford that new pickup? And not just define afford, but then we also have to start thinking about need versus want. You see, some of you work livestock. Some of you have to have four-wheel drive. You work or live out in the country, and you've got to have a pickup truck. 
You haul stuff from to or fro. You need a pickup. You might need a new one every once in a while because you go through pickup trucks like I go through walking shoes, right? But I live in the city. I hardly go off-road. I hardly ever have to haul anything anywhere. Not only that, but i got a couple of guys who have said, if you ever need a truck, just let us know. There's no reason for me to go out and get a new pickup truck. What's, what's need? What's want? What's good? What's bad? These are just some examples I came up with. I wonder how many of you have perhaps a different example, something you might do or get or try to experience because of how it benefits you or brings pleasure to yourself. And that is how we define good, unfortunately. By what brings us pleasure, what benefits us. The entire world is able to benefit themselves and bring themselves pleasure anytime, any place, in any way. And that is not always a good thing. In fact, I'd say a lot of times it's a bad thing. And what this has really done is when, when the, the uh, motivation is bringing ourselves benefit or bringing ourselves pleasure, what, really is in, what is really happening is, is, is we are now satisfying ourselves and we are worshiping ourselves. We've made ourselves God. But what pleases you, Brian, instead of what pleases God? And what this does is it leads to an addictive behavior, and the addiction is really about worship. Who we are worshiping is the man in the mirror instead of the man who died on the cross for us. Here's my second thing about the good issue. It's not only that we are confused about what is good, but we are addicted that should be to our definition, not to our addiction. We are addicted to our definition of good. It was 1.30 in the morning when I was writing this, so I was a little tired. The problem is, is we become addicted to pleasure and self-centered benefits. We decide we need something without realizing that really it's a want. And we sacrifice everything for one more want or one more gratifying pleasure. If it does not bring us pleasure, then it must be bad, we reason. Or if it does not benefit me, then it must be bad, we reason. But good and bad by these definitions are skewed because they are done from our perspective. Here's, here's, what, I mind, here's what I mean. In my mind, it would be really good if the Cowboys won today and the San Francisco 49ers lost. It would be bad if the Cowboys lost and the 49ers won. But that, that definition of good and bad is based on my perspective. If you're a fan of the 49ers, you would say the opposite. It would be good if the 49ers won and the Cowboys lost because that's what you want. Okay, that's kind of silly. Here's something a little more real. It would be good if I got the job promotion and the other guy didn't. It would be good if my kid got that scholarship and the other kid didn't. Who's defining good? You, we, us. We're defining good. And the problem with that is, is it's defined from our perspective of good and bad instead of looking from the perspective of someone else. What if that kid needed that scholarship and that was the only scholarship they could possibly ever get? What if that guy needed that job promotion and that raise so he could keep his home? Our wants, our benefits, our pleasures, what they do is they start to take center stage and it becomes all about us and so we become conditioned 
to judge good and bad from only the perspective of me, of you, of us. And the problem with this is that it is selfish and it is self-centered and it becomes all about us. What makes me happy? And living this way, living with this perspective of good and bad takes all the glory from God and puts it on our pleasure and our benefit. And I don't want this. I don't want to glorify my idea of good. I don't want to glorify what benefits me. I don't want to glorify what brings me pleasure. I want to glorify God. And what that requires is that I leave the defining of good up to Him. What that means is that my perspective shifts to His perspective. And like the psalmist, I say, be surety, be the guarantor of your servant for good. And what that means, God, is I don't know what life will look like tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month or next year, but I'm going to trust in you because you are the only one that can truly define what good is because my judgment is skewed because I'm selfish and I'm sinful and I've got flesh that wants this, this, and this. So what is the solution? We trust in the Lord as the only good, as the only guarantor of good. We must leave judging between good and bad to our Lord and our Heavenly Father and put things into His hands and simply submit to His will. And you're like, simply? Right? I know, right? But that means every single day we wake up and say, God, going to have a hard time with this. Going to have to confess it to you. That's something I pray like every day. God, going to have a hard time with it. Going to have to confess it to you. I want to live life how I want to live life, but i got to turn it over to you and trust you for what good really looks like. We have to somewhat say, like, I love you, God, and your will for my life is the only good I will be satisfied with. And this is the conclusion the psalmist comes up with in the last two verses. Let's just read. I'm sorry, I, I'm going a little bit long. Verse I'm not apologizing. Verse 127 through 128. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, and I hate every false way. This is the conclusion that he comes up with. I don't care about anything else. I'm just going to love your word. That's it. That's it. The Cowboys, the Astros, the new pickup truck. The things that bring me pleasure, the things that benefit me, I don't love those things anymore. I'm just going to love your word. That's it. Because loving God and loving his word are kind of simpatico, right? They go hand in hand. I'm going to just love your commandments. Why? Because they are more valuable than gold. Or pickup trucks or Dallas Cowboys or Houston Astros or anything else, right? And then that next conclusion, he says, and really, I think, I wonder if he had to pray this every day. This is something I would have to pray every day. All your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. You know, there are some days that we're going to look at what God is doing and say, I don't know if that's right. But in faith, we must submit to his will and say, I'm going to consider all things about your word to be right. It's supposed to be our conclusion as well. Simple, succinct, submissive to Him. Trusting Him to make good out of any situation. 
and he would be the one that knows how to make good out of any situation. As he watched humanity go from praising his son to crucifying his son, I got to believe that God the Father looked down on that and said, this is bad, but I know the good I have in store. I know the good that is in my will. And if we can look at our life with those same kind of lenses and say, this is bad, but I'm going to trust God the Father to make good out of this just like he made good out of the life and death and resurrection of his son. I said the Lord acts. There will be never a better act on behalf of humanity than when he sent his son to be the bestest, goodest good we could ever imagine. Saving our souls from our sinfulness, bringing us into right relationship with God. Friend, I don't know what horrible situation you might be facing, but is it too simple to simply say, trust God to make good out of it, because he is our guarantor for good. You know, Kathleen and I were able to qualify for that house on our own credit. We will never qualify on our own credit in God's economy. We must have his good in our life. We must have his good in our life. And what that means is we must have his son in our life. We're going to have a time of invitation. You know, some of y'all need to respond to this. I would say we all need to respond in some way. Through prayer, repentance, seeking the Lord as your Savior. Maybe just spending some time in prayer about trusting His definition of good over your definition of good. And that's hard. I know it is, and He knows it is. That's why He is so incredibly patient and loving and grace-filled towards us. But we need to start. We need to start now, turning it over to Him and living simply for His good and not our good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that you are the bestest, goodest good we can ever experience. Thank you, Lord, for the reminders of your goodness through your word, through our life experiences, through encouragement and comfort. And thank you, Lord, that you're the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and so on and so on, chances, would you just continue to talk to us, to show us how we can turn and submit ourselves more and more to you every day. I thank you for the patience of those that are here this morning. May your word and your Holy Spirit be heard loudest. It's in your name I pray this, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?